0: Who would have imagined in March of 2020 that we would see all we've seen in the last year, right? But I want to take a few minutes, and I want to just challenge you. You've already heard one great message this morning from Eden. How about it? Yeah. She was talking about worship, and I just want to... Follow that point up a little bit today. I'm beginning a brand new series that we're going to take the next four weeks, and we're going to lean into those things that don't change, those things that are constant about the mission and the purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at the circumstances that we've been dealt in the last year, and and you could be talking from things physically to socially to politically, economically, on and on and on. It, to me, it feels like we, we were all standing on a table in March of last year. With four legs and then all of a sudden somebody just came and cut one of the table legs out from under us and said good luck. And, uh, and then 2021 finally got in here and how many of you feel like somebody cut one of the other legs out from under the table? It's in moments like that that I think about a, a question that David's friends asked him. In Psalm chapter 11 verse 3, I want you to see the question that they ask. They said to him, when the foundations are being destroyed... What can the righteous do? And I don't know if maybe you felt that way. Maybe you felt like considering the circumstances and everything that's going on in our world, I mean, what can the righteous really do? Well, I want to encourage you that it's in these times, it's in moments like this that we really need to lean in, not to everything that is changing, but to what hasn't changed. We need to lean in with all of our hearts, church, to what can never change. And so for these next four Sundays, I want to talk about what those things are. And then at the end of this month, we're going to uh, produce a life group material for you to, to gather in homes with other believers and to talk about some of these things. And I would encourage you over the next several Sundays, we're going to try to encourage you to get into a group to plug in and connect relationally. We've all felt the the distance of a lack of connection in this last year. And I believe in this spring, as we move into summer and we continue to see uh, health on the rise and and COVID in decline, God's going to do a fresh work in community in this church. But let me tell you today what those four things are. As the church, as the people of God, from day one, when Jesus established the church, this has never, never, never changed. We gather. We gather grow. We give and we go. We gather in worship. We grow in discipleship. We go in evangelism and we give through compassion. And today, I want to just focus for a few minutes on this thought of gathering in worship Here's what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. And I want to stay in Colossians for a few moments. It says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, Jesus, and by him. In other words, Paul is saying it's all by Jesus and it's all for Jesus. Essentially, he was telling us we live for his pleasure. A lot of people have read a lot of self-help books to try to discover the purpose of their life, and they've come up empty. And I can tell you, you'll never find the purpose for your life by pursuing what brings you pleasure, because you weren't created for your pleasure, you were created for the pleasure of God. We were created to worship. Now, the beauty of that is that we are most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in us. And so if you'll pursue God with all of your heart, you will find fulfillment and satisfaction. But I would challenge you <coughs> to consider that there are not many places you can find a picture of God's presence that you don't also find a picture of worship. Worship is what happens when we move into the presence of God. If you go to the very beginning of the Bible to the first family, you see Cain and Abel, the first siblings. And what do we find them doing in Genesis 4? They're bringing an offering of worship to God. A little later, we see the story of God's judgment over the whole world. And he floods the earth, saving only Noah and his family and and all the animals. And the Bible says the moment that Noah steps out onto the newly cleansed soil of the earth, for the first time, it says, there, he built an altar. The moment he experienced A a renewal and a work from God. He built an altar. The first time that God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance for you and for your people. The Bible says there, Abraham built an altar. In Isaiah 6 Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord and of his presence, and he says he sat high on a throne, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And what did he experience in that moment? He said there were seraphims surrounding the throne of God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Over and over and over again, when we see the presence of God, we see the presence of worshipers. <clears throat> I think about when Solomon built the temple. And when it was finally completed and they began to offer the sacrifices on the altar, the Bible says the presence of the Lord came down and filled the whole temple like a great cloud. And everyone, it says, stopped what they were doing. The priests could no longer perform their duties. Why? Because they were worshiping God. They fell on their faces in worship to God. Everywhere you see God's presence, you see God's people worshiping. And then in Revelation, we get a picture of what is to come, and we see the Lamb of God standing in the center of the throne room of God in Revelation 5, and it says he's surrounded by millions, 10,000 times 10,000. That's a 100 million angels, and they're all singing his praise, <coughs> and they're declaring with one voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. God's surrounded with worshipers. Like every created thing, which, by the way, it goes on to say all created things will join in that chorus. Like every other created thing, friends, you were created to worship God. It's your purpose. And so it's no wonder when Jesus established the church, he said, you're going to come together for this purpose. We're going to be worshipers. Now, one of the expressions of worship that we're all familiar with, probably the first one we think of, is singing. Singing is a great way to worship God. Now, I know some people say, I'm not a singer. I don't really, that's not my thing. <clears throat> why do we have to sing all the time? Well, I'll tell you why we sing all the time. We sing because in the Word of God, there are 400 references to singing. And there are 50 direct commands to sing. sing. So, all right, it's not about preference, it's about obedience. We sing because God's people have always been a singing people. <clears throat> the New Testament commands us, not just once but twice, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another when we meet in Ephesians and in Colossians. Even on the eve of the crucifixion, the Bible says Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples, <clears throat> they were singing. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways it talks about being filled with the Spirit, it says address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord with your heart. So worship is singing, but can I tell you today, worship is more than a song. In fact, worship is whatever you're willing to do to bring pleasure to God. Whatever you'll do to bring ple- pleasure to to God. So if you're leaning in today and you're receiving the word of God that's being communicated, that's an act of worship. I know we call the singing the worship service, and this is the preaching, but how many of you know it's all worship? Whatever we do to please the Lord, whenever you seek him in prayer, whenever you serve in the church the way these students are today, you're worshiping God. Whether it's up here on the platform or greeting people at the door or serving in kids' ministry, you're worshiping God. When you give sacrificially, you're worshiping God. Had someone in the last, uh, just between the services, come and, and bring an offering from proceeds of a sale and say, I just, I w- God's been good. I want to give this to the Lord. That's an act of worship. When you serve those that are less fortunate, when you stand up for causes where there's injustice, these are all acts of worship. In fact, Paul said it like this in Colossians a little bit later. Chapter three, verse 17, he said, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. He said, whatever you do, whether it's a word you're speaking or an action, something you're doing, even in our thoughts, he said, you can let it be unto the Lord, giving thanks to the Father. A little bit later in that same chapter, Paul says in verse 23, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. So in other words, even our work is worship when we do it as unto the Lord. Jesus said it like this in the Gospel of Mark. In answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest command in all of God's word. So when it comes to worship, the the heart of the matter, it really is the matter of the heart. It really is about what's going on on the inside of you. Worship is not just the outward activity. It's about the heart. And I want to show you a verse in the book of Malachi. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament. Malachi is writing to a group of worshipers that have become apathetic. They've become complacent in the issues of the heart. They're still doing all the things that outwardly look like you should do as a worshiper, but God was grieved with what he saw on the inside. For example, one of the things that that God required specifically in the Old Covenant was that the Passover lamb be pure because that lamb was a shadow of Christ who would be the fulfillment of our great sacrifice. And so God gave very specific instructions that when you get a lamb, it needs to be a lamb without blemish. It needs to be a spotless lamb. It can't be a crippled lamb. It can't be a blind lamb. It it, it can't have any skin diseases. It needs to be a spotless, pure lamb. And maybe like some of us, they were going through the motions and they just didn't see the significance of all of these protocols. And so what happened is the The priest in Malachi's day decided to just go ahead and get the most convenient sacrifice. You know, if there's a crippled lamb over here, he's not really keeping up with the flock. We'll just put that one on the altar. I mean, if he's just going to die and and be burnt on the altar, what does it matter if he's crippled? Let's get that that lamb over here that's blind in one eye. We'll bring that one to the Lord. Nobody's going to know the difference from out there in the congregation. We'll just make the sacrifice. And God speaks to the nation through the prophet Malachi in chapter one and verse 10. And here's what he said to them. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. In other words, God is saying to them, Your worship is worthless in my eyes. What you're doing is of no effect. It's a useless fire. In other words, God is saying to them, I don't want you to just bring me what's convenient. I don't want to just bring you what's what's just easier for you. I want you to bring me an offering. I want you to bring me a sacrifice. And maybe that's a question that some of us need to consider today. Am I bringing my best offering to the Lord? When I come to worship him, when I show up on Sunday morning, am I giving him my very best? When I pull into my my job on Monday, am I doing it as unto the Lord? Am I bringing my best offering? I mean, can you imagine God saying to us, you know what? Just shut the doors. I'd rather you just lock the doors and not even sing a song because your heart's not in it it's a useless fire but yet that's what god did say that's what he said to them he said i wish you would just shut the temple door you know it sounds a lot like what jesus said to the church at laodicea in his letters to the seven churches in the book of revelation jesus had this to say to one of them in Luke, revelation 3:15 he said i know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, you know, if, if you were hot, if, you were, if it was boiling point, you'd be purposeful. And the same is true as if you were cold. Cool water is refreshing and, and cleansing and revitalizing. But he says, you're, you're neither. You're not fulfilling a purpose. It's a It's a useless fire on my altar, and and it makes me sick. He said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. God doesn't want a tempid praise. But can I tell you that that's not an excuse for us. Not to engage in worship. See, a lot of times we think, you know, well, my life's not in place. I'm not really living for the Lord. And, and you know, I've got some other things I'm trying to work on. And once I get that stuff worked out, I tell you what, then I'll, I'll worship. Then I'll get back in church. Then I'll, I'll give. Then I'll be a part. Listen, you, you, you can't wait until it feels right to you because we're commanded to worship. But we're also commanded to worship the right way. So it's true that worship is not just outward activity, it's about the heart, but I also want you to understand today that an awareness of God's presence demands a response. And we see it all through the scripture, when God's presence showed up, people responded in worship. An awareness of God's presence demands a response. Now, I know we're not all extroverts, Not everybody's going to lift their hands and and clap and shout, and maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're going, I don't know why they're clapping so much this morning. You guys clap a lot. We're not all made the same way. Look at somebody and say, thank God. (laughs) But an awareness of God's presence, I don't care, personality, societal background, comfort zones, all that stuff aside, an awareness of God's presence demands response. Can you imagine just for a moment, just imagine if Jesus himself in the flesh walked in this room this morning and stood up here on this platform. I dare say there wouldn't be a dry eye in the house. I think if Jesus began to speak to us with an audible voice, there'd be a lot of folks kissing carpet real quick But how many times are we unaware of the presence of God? Or a more scary thought, we are aware that God is in this place, and yet our heart is not responsive. Church, we've always, always been about this. We gather to worship our God. Jesus said it like this. He said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth Speaks. In other words, if God is doing something in your heart, it ought to manifest in your vocabulary. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There ought to be something that comes out of you. Jeremiah said it like this. He said, when I tried to contain your word, when I tried to keep it in, it was like fire shut up in my bones. I could not contain it. In other words, when the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changes your life, Getting you to say amen should not be the challenge. Jeremiah said, I can't stop testifying. I can't stop sharing the good news. When the gospel changes your life, it ought to change your language. David said it like this in Psalm chapter 40. He said, the Lord picked me up from the miry pit. He put my feet on a firm foundation. He's talking about salvation. And in describing what happened at the moment that God saved him, in verse 3, he says these words. He says, he put a new song in my heart, a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise a song of joy, many will see it and they'll fear and they'll put their trust in the living God. David was saying, when, when I, when I experienced salvation, I opened my mouth and I began to testify and that impacted other people. Did you know your worship is evangelistic? <clears throat> he said, many are going to see it and they're going to fear and they're going to put their trust in God. I want to ask this worship team to come back up here and And join me. I want to just challenge us today with this conviction. God has called us to be participants. You know, the longest book in the Bible, Psalms, is an exhortation to worship. It's a call for us to engage. There's a lot of different ways you can respond to God. In fact, in Psalm 95 It mentions several ways that that you can respond. Let let me just read some of these to you. It says, come let us sing for joy. That's an appropriate response to God. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Come on, how many of you know it's okay to shout sometimes? Yeah, can I I get a shout from the choir over here? (coughs) It says in verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving. Just thanking God for all of his goodness in our lives and extol him with music and with song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. In other words, you can go to the highest heights or the lowest depths, but God is there and he's worthy of praise. So verse five says, the sea is his, he made it and his hands formed the dry land. So come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And then then David says something so powerful in verse seven. He says, today, if only you would hear his voice. I believe an awareness of God's presence demands a response. If only you would hear his voice. The question is never, is God speaking? It's always, are we hearing his voice? Are we listening? I'm going to ask these students to just lead us in one more worship song as an opportunity to respond. But before they sing it, I want to go back to the question that David's friends ask him. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, they ask the question, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And when they asked that question, I believe it was rhetorical. I believe they assumed there was only one answer, nothing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing we can do. At that moment, verse 1 and 2 describes his friends saying, David, you ought to pray that God would make you like a bird that you could flee to the mountains. Because we can see into the shadows and the enemy archers already have their bows drawn back and they're going to destroy us. And when they destroy us and the king, they're going to destroy the kingdom and the society's going to crumble. So what can the righteous do? But David doesn't look at the archers with their bows drawn. And he doesn't look at the circumstances that are around him. David makes a critical decision. David chooses to look up. That's what worshipers do. That's what's unchanging about the church, even in 2021. We keep looking up. And David responds to what they thought was going to be a simple nothing answer. And he says in verse four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. In other words, he's saying God is sovereign. God is in charge. I know it feels like there's a lot of people pulling the strings down here, but God is sitting on his throne. He says in verse, the next verse, he observes everyone on the earth. His eyes examine them. He's saying, you know what? God is omnipotent. God knows everything. Nobody's deceiving us. Nobody's pulling one over. God is not only omnipotent, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. And David just keeps looking up. And then he says in the next verse, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, He hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain down fiery coals of burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. You know what he's saying? He's saying God is a righteous judge. And in the end, right will prevail. And he ends with these words in verse seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. And the upright will see his face. So when the question's asked, When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If David had bought the deception and believed, well, nothing, he would have never stepped out from the battle lines and faced Goliath. He charged the battlefield when everyone else hid for one reason, because he believed there was something the righteous could do. And he stood before that giant. He said, you're not defying me. You're defying the very God of heaven the God of Israel's army. And I don't know what you're up against or what changing circumstances have weighed you down, but I want to challenge you to look up, to look up and to recognize that what we're doing in this moment is the very thing that God called the church to do. So would you stand with us all over this room?